0: Doesn't anyone realize that he's dead? In the 1980s, one movie boldly went where no movie had gone before. It wasn't Indiana Jones, neither was it Back to the Future, not even Star Wars. This is Weekend at Bernie's. (laughs) Weekend at Bernie's is about two young guys, Larry and Richard, who want to climb up the corporate ladder. When they go to the president of the corporation, who's Bernie, uh, with a serious financial error on a printout, Bernie pretends to be thrilled and invites them to his lake house for the weekend. But Bernie actually plans to have Larry and Richard killed. But while planning trouble for Larry and Richard, Richard, Bernie gets into trouble himself. Bernie is sneaking around with the girlfriend of his mafia partner. And when his mafia partner finds out, he has Bernie killed. Meanwhile, Larry and Richard arrive at Bernie's beach house for the weekend and find Bernie's body. Comedy ensues when Larry and Richard have to end up pretending Bernie is still alive and convince everyone else that he is still alive. As the frustrated man tries time and again to complete his job to take out Bernie. Weekend at Bernie's is hilarious because the audience is in on the secret the entire time that Larry and Richard are trying to hide, pretending that a dead guy is alive. Now, while at times Larry and Richard are really good at this, the whole thing is ridiculous. It should be obvious that Bernie is dead. But person after person, even a whole group of people, are convinced that this dead guy is alive. Now, we come to this portion of the book of James this morning, and James warns his readers that they can handle their faith the same way that Larry and Richard handled Bernie, propping it up and pretending it's alive when it's actually dead. We want to read together James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. So I want to invite you to turn there. If you're looking in a Bible in the, that we have here in the pew rack in front of you, in front of you, you will find it on page 1012. That's 10:12. Uh, just a note: if you're uh, kind of new to the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers in bold print, and the verse numbers are the little numbers, kind of looks like a footnote at the beginning of a sentence. So we're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. This is pretty much what we do every week. We take a portion of the Bible, which we believe is God's word. We try to explain it according to its original intents of the author, and then seek to apply it to our lives, how the Lord reveals himself to us, and how he would reveal that he would have us live in light of it. So we're going to do that today. We're working our way through this letter of James, and today we're in the second half of chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers? Someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the needs of, uh, things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say... Over the last four or so weeks, we've seen James tell his readers that he wants them to have a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. James opened by saying that the trials they faced, particularly facing persecution for their faith, the trials his readers faced represented a temptation to waver in their trust in and love for God. James goes on to present the problem that different areas of their lives can show that their devotion to the Lord is divided, trying to serve God and serve themselves at the same time. At the end of the day, that's impossible. And so James addresses this problem usually first by not just saying, try better. He addresses this problem by showing them the heart of God and God's character and God's grace. James reminds them of his goodness and God's love toward them. That God is so much better than the other things they are trying to fit in God's place. Well, here in this part of chapter 2, James really leaves off, or picks up where he left off in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. It was there when he told his readers that if they didn't show mercy, it showed that they had never received mercy themselves. And he expands on that truth in chapter 2, in this part. If their faith in the Lord Jesus, who he says, the Lord of glory, if their faith in the Lord Jesus did not produce change in them, then they don't have faith in the first place. If faith was meant to bring new life, but they are lifeless, well, then they have yet to receive that new life. So here's the main point of this passage of our time together today. Our Savior should so capture our hearts that our faith in him is not mere words but no holds bar living for him our savior should so capture our hearts that our faith in him is not mere words but no holds bar living for him now this section we're dealing with today is the medius part of the letter and it's the part that's been the most hotly contested throughout church history so, we want to try our best to present it clearly, present it on its own terms. So, we'll organize our time in five different points. Okay, these are the blanks in your bulletin. Uh, we'll see James's concern, James's terms, James's conclusion, James's arguments, and James's impact. I'll repeat those real quick, but they'll come up again. His concern, his terms, his conclusion, his argument, and his impact. All right, we'll start with James's concern. We see James' concern comes out the most clearly in verses 14 and 18. Those are the first sentences of the two paragraphs in this section. So look again at verse 14. He says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Implied answer, no. Verse 18. He says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There are people who take their hobbies and their interests so seriously that by the nature of their intensity of their interest and passion for their hobby, they will expose any kind of phony commitment to those who have the same interest or hobby. Right. So you can fill in the blank with whatever interest you like, and maybe it's you're really into Lord of the Rings, you're really into interior decorating, you're really into Harley Davidson or basket weaving. Now, since this is the season, since this is my wheelhouse, and I apologize for those who aren't its wheelhouse, we're going to talk about. Let's say you make a commitment. You say you are a Browns fan. <laughs> okay. You make this claim. I am a Browns fan. And let's say you make this claim to another, you know, true, what we would say, a diehard Browns fan, one who might have a problem. Uh, and so you make this claim and then this true Browns fan automatically goes into the mode of testing the veracity of your claim. So he says, you know what, Art, what offensive scheme are the Browns running this year? Uh, what, what, about the, what is the injury history of our starting running back, Nick Chubb? What is the blood type of the defensive coordinator? <laughs> And there's an on and on and on. And when you can't keep up with these questions and your claim to fandom is exposed, the true fan says, Depart from me, for I never knew you. (laughs) Well, James has spoken of the centrality of faith throughout his letter so far. He's talked about how trials serve to test our faith in chapter 1, verse 3. He said how God is the source of our faith. He's the one who brought us forth, chapter 1, verse 18. James addresses his readers as those who hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 1, he says how faith is the foundational gift that God gives. Chapter 2, verse 5, those who are rich in faith. But what does it look like to have real faith in Jesus? It tests that claim. So James' concern is not to pit faith against works. No. James' concern is to pit two different kinds of faith against one another. A faith that has no works and a faith that does have works. James has a concern about a faith that is in word only. Just a claim, but no more than that. That's his concern. He has the concern that we talked about in our opening. Propping up a dead faith and calling it living. James is going to show how faith proves to be real and proves to be alive. But before we go any further, we need to be clear on the terms James uses. If we aren't clear on what James means when he uses certain key words, we'll run into trouble when we're reading other passages in the New Testament, particularly passages by the Apostle Paul. So, looking into more of James' terms, let's compare What James says with what Paul says. All right, James, in verse 21 here, he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Compare that with what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Righteousness. Another example. Compare what James says to what Paul says. Look at uh, James 2, verse 24. He says, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. What Paul says in Romans 3, verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So James and Paul appear to be directly contradicting one another. James saying that we're justified by works Paul's saying we're justified by faith. Which one is it? Well, friends, that's why we need to understand the different concerns of each author. The concerns of James, the concern of Paul. And then we'll understand what they mean when they use the key terms faith and justify. So let's figure out, what, what does James mean when he uses that word faith? All right, remember, James is concerned about faith being real and alive. That's his concern. So when he talks about the faith that doesn't save, he's talking about something that's not actually faith. He's referring to that empty claim, merely saying that you believe. That's the kind of faith he talks about in verse 24. On the flip side, when Paul talks about faith, He's not talking about fake faith. He's talking about real, living, authentic faith. Different concerns. Shapes how they use these terms. Now, what does James mean when he uses the term justify? You see that word translated justified. It can be used in a couple different ways. It can be used to refer to someone being vindicated in the judgment, like a courtroom term. The judge's verdict of innocent, right? So God declared Abraham to be righteous when Abraham had faith. That's what Paul emphasizes in Romans 4. So God giving Abraham a verdict of righteousness. All Abraham did was believe. He received this verdict as a gift. But then there's another way to use this term, justify. Not as a righteous verdict, but to refer to someone demonstrating or proven to be right or righteous demonstrating or proven. So again, friends, think of James's concern. He wants to prove that faith is more than an empty claim, that faith is more than mere words. So works, good works, back up the claim to faith. So Abraham, take this example. Abraham had already been declared righteous. He has that verdict because he believed. But later, he demonstrated that faith, that he believed. He professed to believe God, and later, he showed he believed God. So, Paul talks about the verdict. James talks about the proof or the evidence. Different concerns shape how they use the same terms, faith justify. So, we've seen James's concerns. He's concerned with a word-only faith. So, he's saying, you have faith, but not showing it, propping it up like something to be dead like it's alive. And we've seen James's terms. When he talks about faith, he's referring to the kind of dead and phony faith that is in word only. When he talks about justified, he's referring to what proves faith to be real, demonstrates faith to be real. So, tracking with me so far. Good? All right. Now, when we put these together, we can see James's conclusion Faith that doesn't prove itself in works is no faith at all. Faith that doesn't prove itself in works is no faith at all. The kind of faith that proves itself and thus to be a genuine work of God is the faith that shows up in works. So he makes four different summary statements along this, the line of this conclusion. All right, so look at me in turn, verse 17, 20, 24, 26. So verse 17. He says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, scare quotes, faith, apart from works, is useless? Verse 24. You see that a person is justified, that is, shown to be righteous, proven to be righteous, by works and not by faith, by doing and not just claiming it. Verse 26. For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, just claiming that you believe, apart from works, is dead. So friends, we can put James and Paul together. Paul says that we are justified by faith alone and Christ alone. But what does that faith look like? That's where James comes in. When we believe in Christ, God declares us righteous, not based on what we've done, but because faith is the instrument through which we receive the finished work of Christ at his cross and his empty tomb. And when that happens, when we receive that work, we will change. We will produce works. That's the evidence. Now, this is how it fits together, and this is James's conclusion. But not everyone comes to this conclusion. Not everyone comes to this conclusion. This passage in particular is a, uh, is a controversial one. Uh, we'll have to say, given the context of Cleveland, Ohio, being so predominantly Roman Catholic, um, it, it, this is, the Roman Catholic Church believes that we have faith in Christ, then do good works, and then God justifies us. They come to a different conclusion on this passage. They see works as part of the basis for our justification, as part of the reason why God declares us righteous or innocent, not as the evidence that God has done that. So just to say this on their terms, to quote the Council of Trent from 1563, which was in response to the Protestant Reformation, which remains a part of the official teaching of the Catholic Church. It says, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, the conclusion we're saying, but not the cause of increase, let him be anathema or cursed. So this is saying that good works aren't just a fruit that God has declared us righteous, that he's given us that verdict, Rather, they are part of the reason why God has declared us righteous. That's not what James is saying. And it's problematic for several reasons. This is more than just semantics. One is the good works we do are not enough to meet God's demands. Like we saw last week, uh, how James says that if anyone has broken one of God's commandments, just one of them, he has broken all of them. Because one person stands behind all of, his, all of those commandments. And even when we do good things, even our good works are tainted by sin. We don't do them with an entirely pure motive. Further, if good works were part of the reason why God would accept us and declare us righteous, then we could and, ne- and should never be sure of our status with God. If it in part depends on us, we should never be sure. Like we've already said, we have too many impurities, too many sins, too little integrity. But further, friends, our good works aren't the basis, aren't the reason why God gives us that righteous verdict. Because if it depends on us, it robs Christ of his glory. It robs Christ of his glory. Christ isn't the beginning of our salvation. Christ is our salvation. Christ didn't just open the way for us so that our own efforts would follow him. He finished the way for us. It's what he said on the cross. It is finished. So all we do, friends, is we receive Christ's finished work by faith. Jesus will be all or Jesus will be nothing. We are justified by faith alone. But because we need to have faith in a righteousness that's not our own a righteousness that is not our own. That's the perfect life of Jesus, who lived the life we should have lived, and yet died the death that we deserve to die in our place. And those who have this faith in Jesus alone will show that they have this faith in Jesus. That is the real faith James is talking about. So this conclusion, does this conclusion mean that good works are a small deal? No. 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 They aren't why God saved us, but they're evidence God has saved us. They're nothing to boast about because they're ultimately from the gift of faith that God has given. They're another reason to praise the Lord. So friend, just bring this home for one second. Have you stopped trusting in your own works? And this is the default for every single person on earth. Have you stopped trusting in yourself? and trusted in Christ's perfect life and substitutionary death. If you trusted in him alone to get you that verdict of righteous before God the Father. And friend, if you have not, won't you do that today? This is not a small deal. This is your peace with God. This is your eternity. This is a secure and lasting joy right now. in particular, Friend, if, if you are a Roman Catholic or still identify as one, I don't want to single you out, but I want to say that we love you. And we love you enough to tell you that the Roman Catholic Church, friends, is wrong on this point. And we want to say that humbly. We want to say that charitably. But I, want, I ask you to consider this. Consider this, investigate this, how we are forgiven by God, accepted by God, and justified by God. These are two important of a matters to just be left aside. If you want to look about this more, a uh, great book to get out in the lobby, also in tract form if you're not into books. It's called What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? Pick that up after service. Come talk to me. So we're justified by faith alone, but that faith never is alone. Faith in Jesus is living. Faith that doesn't display itself in works is no faith at all. It's dead. That's James' conclusion. Now, how does James prove this conclusion? He gives four different illustrations or examples. So these are James' arguments, all right? This is the next section, James's arguments. So two of, two of these are negative examples. Two of these are positive examples. And we can compare them and see the point that James makes. All right, so the first negative example he gives comes in verses 15 and 16. All right, look at those with me there. Verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So the person in this scenario claims to care about this poor brother or sister. Now, we just say right away, if that person cared so much about this poor brother or sister, then he would have done, did more than say something, he would have done something. Instead, he gives condescendingly free advice. Hey, I see you're cold. You know what's a good idea? You should go get warm. Hey, I see you're hungry. You know what's a good idea? You should go get some food. Compare this to the example of Rahab, who James mentions in verse 25. Look at that. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now remember what we said justified means when James is using it, demonstrates, proves to be right, proves her faith. So the story of Rahab, if you don't know, is from the book of Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a Gentile, it's a non-Jewish person who lived in the city of Jericho. She already had faith in the one true God before the event described here. So the event described here demonstrated her faith that was already there. So despite being a foreigner and an outcast, Rahab recognized that she couldn't just claim to have faith. She couldn't just say, hey, I believe in God. No, she had to live out her faith. And that meant she needed to meet the needs of God's people as they presented themselves, which is what she did. So notice the difference between Rahab and the person mentioned at the beginning in verses 15 and 16. A person from verses 15 and 16 gives kind words and advice, but holds back everything. Not willing to risk, not willing to move. James doesn't say, oh, this is half faith, that you're almost there. No, James says this is dead faith. Compare that to Rahab, on the other hand. She saw a need and didn't hold back anything. She opened up her house, her resources, her ingenuity. She risked her personal safety. That is living faith, more than just claiming it, living it. So friends, we've talked about caring for people. There's been a theme throughout James. We talked about it last week. We want to have hearts for this. And friends, we want to actually follow through on this. This is very easy for something to sound good. It sounds good that we want to care for people. It's another thing that we should they do it? So remember, our Lord is one who was rich, but for our sakes became poor. When we believe that, we won't just say, hey, it's a nice concept to to care for people and be generous. No, we'll live in the same selfless way our Lord lived. Our faith in the Lord Jesus, the ultimate generous one, should lead us Not just to say something nice for others and say that caring for others is a good idea. Faith in Jesus should lead us to generosity and care for others that is living and tangible and real and sacrificial and feels risky. It leads us to that because we are so blown away by the Lord's generosity to us. Friends, embrace that. Don't be scared of that. This is where the Lord is. So we're justified, that is declared righteous by God, by faith alone, because we received the perfect righteousness of Christ. But when we believe that, that faith is demonstrated, so that faith is never alone. It gives evidence that it's real. So we show we have real faith in Jesus by how we live. There's another set of examples James uses to prove this conclusion. So the next negative example deals with demons. You look at verse 19. It says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Friends, demons know more theology than you. Demons know more theology than you. Demons have an impeccable statement of faith. For instance, when we read in the gospel books, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, demons come up to Jesus all the time, proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God, the Lord who will judge the living and the dead. And here in James, the demons confess the truth of the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6. It goes like this Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. The demons say this. Isn't that enough? No, James says. Get a clue with how the Shema continues. Next part of the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 starts off: Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. Demons fail at that. Faith is not just about agreeing who God is, faith is loving God. To compare this with Abraham, who we've talked about some already, you look at verse 21 says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So this is from the book of Genesis. And what happens first in Genesis is what James says. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteous. He has that verdict. That's from Genesis chapter 15. Also, God prom- so this comes from God promising Abraham descendants. Abraham, he was very old at the time. He knew that this was humanly and physically impossible. So God must be the one who does it. And yet he believed in God, that God was able to keep his promise. So another 25 more years, Abraham still hasn't had a kid. But finally... Abraham has the son, Isaac, the son he's been waiting for, his miracle son, through whom God would fulfill his promises to him. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, Abraham had to do more than just say he believed in God. He had to demonstrate that he believed in God. Along the lines of James's conclusion, So remember, you see that works are the fruit of the faith that was already there. Abraham already believed God, but later he demonstrated that he believed God. This is living faith. Abraham trusted God so much that he held nothing back from him. So here we have Abraham, the father of Israel, Rahab, a prostitute in Jericho. Both were capable of living out this kind of real faith in the Lord. So we've tried to work our way through this passage, think through it carefully. Just gonna close by stepping back and looking at it as a whole. What should this passage's impact be on us? What should his impact? This is James's impact, the last point. Well, remember, James is, James is writing out of a concern for his readers. So this passage does come with a warning. It comes with a warning not to prop up a dead faith and pretend like it's alive. So friends, I want to say be careful of talking a big talk about your works and the stuff that you do. Be careful about that. Talk about your love for your Savior and let your works do even more talking about your love for your Savior. Beware, friends, of empty claims of faith. Saying you believe But actually, having an indifferent heart, a heart that's neutral, a heart that's not showing you believe by growing in a wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Be careful of empty claims. We think, in light of this warning, you might ask, How much evidence is enough evidence? How much do we need to demonstrate our faith? I don't think we're meant to answer that in specific ways uh, from this passage. But when we read other books from the Bible, like 1 John, we find God is more concerned about evidence that we're walking in a new direction, not evidence that we have achieved some kind of new perfection. Evidence of a new direction, not perfection. Walking in that. Daily habits. Lifestyle change. Now, if we use the image of a a live person and a dead person that James does, we can ask... in response to how much evidence is enough, well, friends, does your faith have even a pulse? (laughs) Does it have a pulse, and is it getting stronger? Another way we can think about how this impacts us is ask, how should we approach trying to produce more evidence? How should we approach good works and having more of them? I say this, don't fixate on works, fixate on your Savior. Don't fixate on works, fixate on your Savior. Doing the reverse of that would be like wanting to buy a gift for someone, but spending all of your time and money on the box you get to wrap that gift for someone. The box is important, yeah, sure. But at the end of the day, if you get someone a really nice gift, that good box is just going to come naturally. You're going to take good care of it if you get someone a nice gift. Focus on Savior, not your works. So do you want to display your faith in Jesus more? Then treasure Jesus more. See his beauty and see all that he is and all that he has done for you. Yeah, you'll have to be disciplined to do that. That's another conversation, sure. But it begins with what you treasure most in your heart. And that should be your Lord. So James isn't talking about faith generally the way our culture often does. James talks about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the object of our faith. And we need to treasure the object of our faith. Listen to Charles Spurgeon talk about the beauty of Jesus. He says, Oh, Jesus, thy power, thy grace, thy justice, thy tenderness, thy truth, thy majesty, and thine immutability make up such a man, or rather such a God-man, as neither heaven nor earth have seen elsewhere, thy infancy, thy eternity. Thy sufferings, thy triumphs, thy death, thine immortality are all woven in one gorgeous tapestry without seam or rent. Does that sound like the kind of Jesus you would make a hobby out of? Or does it sound like a Jesus who would be your treasure and the longing of your soul? Does this Jesus sound like a person who is nice Does this Jesus sound like one who you should be bored with? Or does this sound like one who should thrill your soul and who you should pursue relentlessly? Friends, if we aren't living out our faith in Jesus, perhaps it's because we treasure something else more. Find something else more beautiful. Find something else more precious. So friends, instead of that, To live out your faith, start by beholding the incomparable and endless beauty of the Savior. And your faith in him will become more alive, holding nothing back. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your beauty. And Lord, we confess that we so often fail to live out our faith. And we just claim it and we do not live it. But God, thank you. Thank you that you have saved us, not based on what we have done, but based on what Christ has done in our place. We want to treasure Jesus, our Savior, and his finished work for us so much so that it is the center of our lives and we naturally do good works for him. Not even to think about it, but it's just secondhand nature. So God, show us your beauty. Show us your grace toward us. Be with each person here, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.